some of the most important words ever spoken before the Supreme Court of the United States were spoken this past week. Wednesday, December 1st, they were spoken by the Solicitor General of Mississippi, Scott G. Stewart. They're words that should be long remembered, and they are words that speak the truth. Here's what he said. Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history and traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They've poisoned the law. They've choked off compromise. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. And 50 years on, they stand alone. Nowhere else does this court recognize a right to end a human life. In case you haven't been following it, this case that's currently before our Supreme Court has the potential to overturn Roe versus Wade and change the trajectory of legalized abortion in the United States. And while no one can say for certain how the court will rule as Christians committed to the sanctity of human life, we have reason for hope this morning. Why? Well, partly because there's a 6-3 conservative majority on the bench. And I would suggest that perhaps nowhere in our recent history have we seen more clearly that elections have consequences. And I would urge you today to understand that what we're seeing in the Supreme Court and the consequences of this decision is a reminder of just how much you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, should care about politics. We need to care about who's elected at every level. We need to care about laws that are made. We need to be involved in the shaping of the future of our country because, among other things, the lives of the unborn depend upon the level at which you and I engage our political system. This morning, I want us to consider our role as citizens in a democracy that has been growing in secular influence. Citizens in a democratic republic that was founded on Christian principles but is now guided by an increasingly secular and humanistic morality. We're going to look at a text in which Jesus speaks directly to our responsibility as citizens, and I want to ultimately outline for you four principles that I believe are clearly articulated throughout Scripture as we consider how we behave as citizens of the United States. Before we turn to our study of Scripture, would you join me in a word of prayer? God, this morning we live in important days. As Christians, we are called upon to live out our faith in a culture that is, at the very least, neutral toward it and, at worst, hostile toward our beliefs. We're called to continue to engage the system in which we live. We're called to be citizens who reflect the values of another kingdom. And I pray this morning that as we consider this text and we think about Jesus' words in a day and age in which your followers met a culture that was completely opposed to who they were, I pray that today the principles and the guidelines of Scripture from Old to New Testament, would inform and guide us 
as we seek to have wisdom on how to live out these days. Now, Lord, as we look at this text, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight would be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning, we're continuing in our series, Walking with Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in chapter 12. Pastor Jared asked that I choose a passage to preach from, from that chapter, so I prayerfully reviewed the passage, read it over and over again, and finally landed on verses 13 to 17. To be honest, I don't think it was the safest choice for a sermon topic this morning, because I'm bound to make somebody upset today. (laughs) I do believe that it is critically relevant today as we seek to live faithfully in a dark world. Before we examine that text, I want to give you some context because it's really important for you to understand exactly how the listeners to this account received this passage. Israel, as we know from our studies in the Old Testament, was a nation that cherished its land. At its very beginning, you'll remember that Abram was called to leave his country and his people and to go to the land that God would show him. You also remember that the Hebrew children left Egypt and spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. When God's people were exiled, they longed to return to the land that was flowing with milk and honey. They viewed this land not only as their home, but as being holy and sacred. See, they were a nation that was chosen by God. They were set apart as God's people. And this land was their home, but more importantly, it was God's land. So when Rome came in and they captured Jerusalem in 63 BC, and they began to have dominion and power over this holy land, it was not received well by God's people. They longed for freedom. They yearned for the long-awaited Messiah to come and deliver them from the evil-occupying overlords. They looked to the day when the son of David would occupy the throne of Israel, and they would once again be governed by God. But during Jesus' lifetime, they were clearly under the rule of a pagan nation. As we think about what kind of government Rome was, and just in case you think that our government or society could be counted among the most sinful and the most immoral governments in history, let me tell you a thing or two about Rome and its rulers. While we watch movies that contain violent content, Rome generated violent content. Spectators would fill enormous arenas and watch men fight to the death. It was every bit as gruesome and horrific as you can imagine, and even more. And while our nation is undergoing an alarming moral revolution that is redefining gender and marital norms, Roman society had no sexual morality. The Roman sexual ethic was driven by male dominance, accepted pedophilia, and saw women as property. Rome's rulers typified this immorality. And while we are often disgusted by the sexual misconduct of leaders at all levels in our society, Roman rulers were some of the most sexually immoral men of all times. Just as one example, Tiberius, the Roman emperor, also known as Caesar, who ruled during Jesus' lifetime, just might have been history's most perverted ruler ever. He was known for extreme pedophilia with boys and girls. And when he was done with them, 
in order to silence them, would often just have them killed. Finally, even as we fight for the rights of the unborn, abortion in the Roman Empire, it was commonplace. There was no protection for the unborn, and so abortion was normal, and the means by which it was accomplished were even more horrific and violent than those of our modern day. And if a woman did not get an abortion and a child was born that either had some sort of health issue or was just unwanted, it was perfectly normal and perfectly acceptable to leave that child on a dung heap or in the city dump to die of exposure and starvation. I could go on and on, but I think you get the picture of the societal and governmental evils of the day. If ever there was a corrupt, immoral society, it was the Roman Empire. And if ever there was a nation that was in need of revival, it was then. The Roman Empire made the United States of America look righteous by comparison. That's really important for you to understand because it sets the context for the tension that would have existed around the conversation today. It's a conversation about taxes, and it also sets the context for Paul's view of Christian citizenship, which we'll look briefly at as we develop principles to guide our own citizenship. Before we turn to Mark and we look at what Jesus says about taxes in particular, let me tell you a few things about the taxes Jews would have paid. There were several. There was a ground tax, which was 10% of all grain and 20% of all wine and fruit. There was an income tax, 1% of a man's income. There was also a poll tax, a day's wages, which was paid to the Roman emperor just for the pleasure of existing. There was also the temple tax, and the list went on and on. Some scholars, in fact, estimate that as much as 40% of a modest Jewish income would be spent in taxes you think your tax bracket is bad. Here's what I want you to grasp. Faithful Jews would have resented paying every penny of any tax that was paid to Rome for at least two reasons. First, the government wasn't their own government. Rome invaded them, forced themselves upon them. Imagine if during our 20 years in Afghanistan, the U.S. had taxed the Afghan people. We were at least there to help. We were there to deliver people from the evil bondages that they were experiencing. But, but can you imagine if we had taxed them how poorly that would have gone? But that's exactly what Rome did. They came in and taxed the very people they had just overtaken. But, but in addition to that, can you imagine the conflict that these people would have experienced within themselves? Should they submit to such a government and even more support it with their taxes? They, they saw the immorality. They understood the things that went on in the Roman culture. How do you pay your taxes knowing that the kind of things your money is going to support are so devious and so wicked? Sound at all familiar? When you pay your taxes, does it bother you to know that things like abortion are being funded? It ought to. But what do we do? And how do we respond? Hang on, because Jesus is going there. He's stepping right into one of the most controversial topics of his day and of ours. He's going to make them feel uncomfortable, and he's going to make us feel uncomfortable. Let's look at the text, and as we do, let me draw a few things out for you. We'll begin in verse 13. We're told that, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. We have to, first of all, ask who they is. 
They, they, if you go back to verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 27, you find Mark's referring to the chief priest, to the scribes and the elders. These are the religious leaders. So they sent uh, two groups of people to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. It's a very odd pairing of, of individuals. The Pharisees, as you probably remember from studies, were ardent nationalists. They clung to the hope that God would send a Messiah that God would, would free them one day from the foreign powers and expel those foreign powers from their land. They despised Rome and having to pay taxes to Rome. The Herodians, who, of whom we do not know much, were also Jews, but they were on the other end of the political spectrum. They collaborated with Rome, and they were supportive of Herod, the so-called king of the Jews. The Herodians would have supported paying taxes to Rome. On that day... It's difficult to imagine a stranger political pairing, a stranger alliance than that one. And why were they sent? Well, they were sent to trap Jesus in his talk. The Greek word here is actually the, the word that's used to hunt or to kill an animal. You know, at the chapel where my office is on Lackland Air Force Base, we, we have a problem with rodents. We've regularly like, got critters that are running around. Sometimes they're seen, sometimes they're not. And recently, we knew we had a rather large rodent that we were trying to catch. We, they set up numerous traps, and my enlisted staff that worked for me were having a lot of fun trying to catch this thing. But, but the problem is every time they would set up a trap, the rodent would outsmart them, would eat the peanut butter off the trap, but leave the trap there. And it got to the point where when they built a large trap with a bunch of sticky uh, devices on it and peanut butter, the rodent must have rolled around for a while trying to free itself and left a lot of fur behind. Finally, finally, my NCYC who's pictured uh, on this picture for you, he and one of our other airmen built an elaborate trap. It had a giant rat trap and it had a walled structure around it. And I won't show you the picture of the rat we caught. It's rather gross and the tail is rather long, but my listed were having fun hunting this rodent. They were out for blood. And that's exactly the picture we get, sadly, when the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus. They're on the hunt to trap Jesus. Look with me at verse 14, and we'll see how they set this trap. And they came to him, the text says, and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the word of God. Now, if you think that sounds like flattery, you'd be absolutely correct. Someone once said that gossip is what you say behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. But flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. That's exactly what's going on here. Proverbs 29.5 says that a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And that's what's happening. They're attempting to spread a net to catch Jesus with his own words. And they begin with flattery. Here's the trap. Continue on in verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now Jesus, they think, is caught between a rock and a hard place. There's no correct answer here. You see, if, if he says it's, it's unlawful, the populace would agree with him and they would cheer him on. But the Herodians could have him arrested. If he says it's lawful, well, the Herodians and, and those on the other end of this political spectrum could agree, would agree with him, but he risked losing his popularity. So what is he supposed to say? 
And as if in an attempt to limit Jesus' response to a yes or no, they ask him again, should we pay them or should we not? Their line of questioning reminds me of one you might hear in a trial as an attorney examines a witness. And the witness might begin to answer with an answer the attorney doesn't want to hear, so the attorney says, no, just answer the question, yes or no. And that's what the Herodians and Pharisees are saying to Jesus. We don't want a clever parable. We don't want some long-winded answer. We just want a simple response, yes or no. Is it lawful or is it not? Jesus outsmarts them. Look at the text, verse 15. We're told it, but knowing their hypocrisy. Now, isn't it both comforting and jarring at the same time to know that Jesus looks right through, right through our words, right through our questions? And, and time and again in the gospel, he sees the hearts of man. He knows the motives. He, he knows what's going on in their minds. And he looks be, through their hypocrisy. And verse 15 says, he says to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, a denarius was a, the equivalent of a day's wage. While common coinage was copper, a denarius was a silver coin. This coin, I've got a picture of it there for you, had the, the head of Tiberius on it, and around his head was the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus, son of Augustus. It literally announced emperor worship by saying that he was divine. On the reverse side could be the, found the title Pontifex Maximus, which meant the high priest of the Roman nation. Tiberius, one of the most immoral rulers of all times, has been declared to be a god and the high priest of their nation. The money itself was blasphemous. Now, I think it's significant also that Jesus didn't have a denarius on him. I read a lot of commentators, and several of them brought this point up. It's not that he and the disciples didn't need money to survive, to buy food and, and provide for the basic provisions of life. But remember, Luke tells us that contrary to what a lot of prosperity gospel preachers will tell you, Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. If you follow Jesus, it doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy and healthy. No, Jesus had to borrow a denarius to make his point. Before we read the rest of the passage, let me tell you just a couple more important details about coinage in the Roman Empire, because you need to understand this, because this is what was on their minds. One of the very first things that a new ruler would do when he came to a land, when he, when he exercised authority, was to have coins minted with his inscription on them. And just as the case, is, is the case today, wherever that currency was valid, the sovereignty of that ruler and that government was recognized. And what's more, when you used that currency... You acknowledge the authority of that ruler and that government. And finally, because the coin had the inscription of the emperor on it, it was considered the emperor's property. All of this was well understood by both the Pharisees and the Herodians. Look again at the text, picking up in verse 16, and let's see what Jesus has to say after he's been given this coin. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They already know the answer. It's obvious. So they say to him, Caesar's. And Jesus says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And we're told, and they marveled at him. Now, the logic of Jesus' pronouncement here might be missed if you don't understand something behind the, the English language. The Greek word that's translated in the ESV as render actually means to, to 
pay back or give back. It's not just to give or to pay someone. It recognizes that that which is being given was the property, the possession of the recipient in the first place. In other words, Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. But Jesus, he, he does, what does he mean by give back to God what is God's? Have you thought about that? Is it tithes? Possibly. Is it offerings? Possibly. But I think it's more than that. See, while the denarius belonged to Caesar because it had Caesar's image inscribed upon it, you and I have an image inscribed upon us. We are created in the image of God. Genesis says male and female. He created us in the image of God. And as such, we belong to God. We are under his rule, under his sovereignty. We are indebted to God. So just in case the Pharisees thought they'd fulfilled their requirements by giving tithes and offerings, or the Herodians thought they had fulfilled their obligations by paying taxes, Jesus says, everything you are and everything you have belongs to God, even the coins in your pocket. His pronouncement astonished everyone that heard him because the text says they marveled at him. Just a few verses later, we're told no one dared to ask him any more questions. Where does that leave us today? How do you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, interact with politics? What does it mean to be a Christian citizen in the United States of America? What do we do when the laws of the land that we live in conflict with the word of God? And how are we to be faithful to Christ in the midst of days that are increasingly evil? Well, let me suggest four principles which are underscored both by this passage as well as the other passages, uh, some other passages that answer these questions. If you've got your insert from your bulletin there, you can follow along and fill in the blanks. The first principle I would suggest to you is that government is ordained by God. I don't know if you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, but, but Nebuchadnezzar had some dreams. And in one of his dreams that's detailed in Daniel chapter 4, we're told that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. More than 600 years later, the Apostle Paul would remind the church in Rome in chapter 13, verse 1 of Romans, that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The consistent witness of both the Old and the New Testament alike is that government is ordained by God, that no one occupies a throne or a palace or a white house save but for the decision of God Almighty. Do you believe that? It means that no matter who sits in the Oval Office, God still sits on the throne. And that any authority that a president or a king holds is but on loan from God. That ought to give us peace the day before Election Day as well as the day after Election Day. Government is ordained by God. But that means that not just government officials, but it means government itself. On this earth, we need government. Without the state, we would live in chaos. Human beings need laws to live together peaceably. Without the state, certain valuable services like utilities, roads, police, and military, they wouldn't exist. 
The state is the origin of many of the things which make life here on this earth livable. So we need to honor government. We need to honor government officials. We need to pray for them. Well, preacher, you say, how do we honor someone who is not honorable? In the military, we have a saying, salute the rank, not the person. Sometimes that's the same way in politics. We must honor our government officials, even if we don't honor who they are as a person. Second, given the first principle, Christians cannot accept the benefits of government while opting out of the responsibilities of citizenship. Jesus made this crystal clear in today's teaching. If the Jews are going to use Rome's money, if they're going to travel on Rome's roads, if they're going to conduct business and provide for their families thanks to the security afforded by the strong hand of Rome, it was essential that they do their duty as beneficiaries of those services and pay taxes. The same is true for us today. We cannot honorably receive all of the benefits of our government while opting out of the responsibilities of citizenship. While Christians in the first century Rome were limited in what they could do and how they could be involved in our government, our democratic system affords us many more opportunities. And I would suggest many more responsibilities. That means a Christian, I would suggest, should never be a draft dodger. A Christian should not lie to get out of jury duty. A Christian should not cheat on their taxes and thereby rob the government. Yes, I'm going there. Church, we need to take seriously the responsibilities of citizenship. And I think that means doing more than just our duty and obeying laws. I would argue that Christians ought to be interested in and involved in politics. We need men and women of God to be engaged in the political processes. And we need to encourage and support Christians who would run for office. Ultimately, you and I as the Church of Jesus Christ here in the United States, we need to be model citizens. The third principle is this. In general, disobedience to human government is disobedience to God. The exception is when a human law contradicts with the laws of God. After Paul stated in Romans 13:1 that all authority comes from God, he goes on in verse 2 to say that whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. 1 Peter 2:13 and 14 and following tell us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For the most part, you and I are expected to obey the government. Disobedience should be carefully weighed against Scripture and with prayer. What we've seen over the past year to two years with riots and protests that turned to violence, that is not godly conduct. If disobeying human laws also, if you disobey a human law based on principle and you also are disobeying a law of God to do so, then I can guarantee you that is not a godly thing to do. Scripture gives us several examples of times when disobedience was not only warranted, but it was done the correct way. 
Acts 5 is one of them. Peter and John responded to the council who have charged them not to teach them in the name of Jesus. And what do they say to the council? They say, we must obey God rather than men. And Daniel 3.18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are facing death in a fiery furnace for breaking the law. And they declare, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden images that you have set up. And all the way back in Exodus chapter 1, when Pharaoh had instructed the Hebrew midwives to kill every newborn male in order to stop the expansion of the Hebrew people in his land, those midwives disobeyed that law and even lied to Pharaoh in order to protect those children because they feared God more than they feared man. Be sure, ladies and gentlemen, that if you are disobeying human government, it is only because obedience would contradict God's laws. Otherwise, we ought to be role models of obeying laws. Here's the final principle I would suggest to you today. Christian citizenship in the city of man must be informed and guided by our citizenship in the city of God. It is to one of our ancient church fathers, Augustine, that we owe the concepts of the city of God and of the city of man. The former anchored in heavenly hopes, the latter in worldly possession. Augustine concludes that ultimately the city of God will triumph. But until then, my friends, we live in the city of man. The closer we get to the second coming of Christ, I believe, and scripture teaches us, that the more our values, those of the city of God, will conflict with the city of man. And as they do, the importance of living by the values of our eternal home grows. One day that tension will be gone, and the kingdom of God will be fully realized. But for now, Peter calls us sojourners, who Hebrews reminds us desire a better country that is a heavenly one. That means the way we conduct ourselves as citizens ought to be representative of our citizenship in heaven. Think of yourself as an ambassador. We heard that in the scripture reading that Eric shared with us at the beginning of the service. We bear his image and represent his name here on this earth. You bear his image and represent his name in the workplace, when you speak with others about politics, at home, in your neighborhood, as you converse with a neighbor who has a conflicting political sign on their yard, and yes, on Facebook, when you comment about politics. We must represent the city of God in all that we do. In the preface to the book, City of Man, Religion, and Politics in a New Era, Michael Gerson and Peter Werner offer contrasting examples of the impact of Christian citizenship. The first is that of Christians in 1930s Germany who were influenced by a political theology that encouraged deference to the state and who carried the baggage of a long, disturbing history of anti-Semitism. Whole denominations quickly accommodated to the rising Nazi ideology. Of course, there were heroic exceptions. But on the whole, the theology of Christians in Germany was deeply discrediting to their faith. 
This failure of conscience and courage had terrible consequences, at least, at least not preventing and at worst encouraging suffering beyond measure in what history would come to know as the Holocaust. The second example is very different. Within a generation of the awful events in Europe, a movement of conscience rooted in African-American churches began to transform America for the better. The political theology of the civil rights movement, in stark contrast to German churches, emphasized the equality of individuals rooted in the image of God, the power of redemptive suffering, and the biblical promise of liberation given to the Hebrews in Egyptian slavery. Christians in this case organized resistance to the oppressive state and protected those who were fleeing persecution, even at the cost of suffering attacks and terrorism. African-American churches, along with some other allies and other Christian denominations, brought honor to our faith. Their example motivated change that benefited untold numbers outside of their religious communities. Complicity in genocide on one hand and the redemption of a nation's promise on the other. Two starkly opposed examples of the consequences of how we live as citizens in this time. Make no mistake our political views, and how we interact with government matter. In fact, our citizenship, or lack thereof, can determine much about the shape of our society. Our faith, our faith must shape our citizenship here in the city of man until one day the city of God is fully revealed and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me?